Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. My guest on the podcast this week is Dr. Alex Aquilina. Alex is a trauma and orthopedic surgeon who played for England rugby at under 18 level. And he's also a clinical research fellow and PhD student at the University of Oxford, where he's investigating patient reported outcomes. In addition, Alex is a Health Education England simulation fellow and has undertaken research into remote training in rural Ethiopia. Alex and I discuss patient outcomes and communication in healthcare, together with deploying remote training in resource limited environments. Hey Alex, how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you? Good, great to have you on. Glad we could find some time to catch up. Um, I know you're super busy doing PhD stuff uh, amongst many other things and we've known each other for quite a long time so this should be quite a fun podcast where we talk about nonsense um, for most of it but before we get there it'd be cool if you could introduce yourself to all the listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and what you're doing at the moment. Okay so uh, my name's Alex, another one. Um, Alex Aquilina and I am currently doing a simulation research fellowship uh, for Health Education England from the Southwest uh, Simulation Network. But this is on the back of trying to finish my, my PhD, um, from which I've taken time out of my orthopedic and trauma training in the Southwest region. Um, so that's pretty much what I'm doing at the moment. And you, you've also got a pretty awesome uh, like kind of sporting background as well, because when we first met, you were finishing off doing quite a bit of rugby at like the England level. Um, so that, that's the other kind of cool thing you've got. Do you want to just talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. So I, was, I haven't played rugby for a little while now, um, but uh, I guess I was um, a bit of a troubled kid at primary school. Um, I was kind of bullied a bit for being bigger than everyone else. And, it wasn't really a sport that suited me. Um, I started playing football like all the other boys in my class, but I was never picked on the team and I was always on the bench. And to be honest, I just wasn't really enjoying it. And, uh, and a guy in the, a couple of years ahead of, in, in primary school was, was playing rugby and we found out a bit about this. Um, my dad used to play hockey and never really had any interest in rugby, but we turned up when I was nine and just, it was like a duck to water and I absolutely loved it. And it was the first season that, people my age group were doing contact um, and being a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger than, than the other kids just um, just something where I could use my use my strengths there really and that's kind of how my rugby started and just carried me all the way through school and I think rugby is a great sport because um, especially going through your teenage years there's a lot of like testosterone and aggression and stuff and you know rather than you you know going to like underage drinking or, or going out and causing trouble. Um, well, maybe I did that a bit as well, but the rugby kind of is, is like a channel channel for that. And um, and I was just lucky that I was actually relatively good at it. And um, I started playing, playing for my school and my club. And then I was school captain. And then that led on to playing um, at a county level. And then when I was 16, I went through county, through area, through region and... Um, Unfortunately, I had a, had a bit of a nasty injury in my knee and needed an operation. And by the time I got back from that, kind of through reputation more than anything else, I, I managed to get slotted into one of the last England trials for my age group and managed to impress enough to be selected for the, for the England third team. Um, and then I went away on, a, on an England training camp for a, 
for a week and then did well enough to be sort of selected up into the second team. So that was just an under-16. I was playing for England A schoolboys. Um, so that's kind of how it all started. And from, from that um, kind of rugby experience, I ended up getting myself a scholarship to a, a local public school um, with the idea being that it would really, you know, enhance my rugby training. And I think before that point, I hadn't really had my heart set on necessarily doing anything. I was quite happy playing rugby and was dabbling the idea whether I wanted to be a professional. Um, I think that knee injury was kind of an eye-opener that actually rugby may not be the be-all and end-all. And it, why am only one injury short of not being able to play again? So it kind of focused me and I ended up thinking what else I'd like to do. And I've always been quite interested in, in the sciences and not great at maths, but also not, not too bad at English literature and that kind of stuff. And just felt that medicine would be a really good fit. And I think that's when I decided I need to start working towards getting my grades and stuff at school. So yeah, that's kind of my, my background with the rugby. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, we, we've had a bunch of guests from um, sporting backgrounds on the podcast recently. Um, and one of the big things is how sports and things like team uh, work, and you mentioned kind of being captain of, of a team and leadership, uh, is really, really helpful when you get into, uh, you know, your job in the future, whatever that might be. For you with surgical training, how useful was kind of the team aspects of things going into that? Yeah, I think, I think, mass, I think, the team aspect for me relates very closely to emotional intelligence and interpersonal skills. And I think that when you're playing sport on a team or involved in any kind of team activity as a young child going into sort of young adulthood, it, those, those, um, those soft skills, as you like, or, or skills that can't necessarily be taught in a classroom are, are really, really essential, um, particularly for something like medicine and surgery. Um, and just just learning how to talk to people um, and and understand and trying to empathize with them understand what they're thinking in order to um, do things like like work in a team particularly in surgery it's sort of a high pressure environment with lots of different people working in a surgical team with lots of different educational backgrounds um, in order and, and being able to sort of read read other people better which which does come from playing sports and and, and socializing a lot when, when you're growing up definitely helps uh, in terms of management and um, keeping everybody happy basically so yeah and, and for surgery where many people listening who might not be from a medical background often associate it with hand-eye coordination and technical skills what are your sort of experiences of the non-technical aspects of, of surgery and healthcare as a whole I think that's um, actually quite a difficult question because I, I don't think that any of the traditional training that I've that I've had has really really kind of built those skills directly. I think I think that those those skills have been developed more as a byproduct of, of going of going through training rather than being trained. Um, so when you're when you're thrown into a into a busy ward environment, when you're when you first first start working as a, as a junior doctor, um, you have a lot to balance. Um, you've, got, you've got your patients. You need to communicate with, with your seniors, you need to communicate with the nursing staff, you need to communicate with your patients and their families. And the, at medical school, we touch, we touch on the communication skills and, and it's becoming increasingly important. But the way it's taught is quite, it's quite formulaic and it's, you're not taught to communicate under pressure in the same way that you perhaps need to on the war environment when you've got a, a job list full, full of things to do and, and the nurse is saying, well, you know, 
Mr. So-and-so's husband's on the ward, you need to come and have a talk and explain what, what the plan is. And so, so there's certain things. There's there's the, the communication skills with 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 um, your patients and your colleagues, and there's communication skills with their family, and then there's also learning how to prioritise jobs. So that, I think those are all soft skills that you kind of have to learn on the job, as it were. Um, some people kind of get it really naturally, and I think it's it's hard work for others, and and some people never never completely get it, and and they and they will struggle. Um, and, and I think people that do tend to struggle usually, hopefully, sort of find themselves in a role where you know that's not so crucial. Um, fortunately, medicine is so diverse that the people that don't necessarily have natural communication skills or can't develop them can go and do slightly other specialties. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think that the ability to work in a team and, and to manage people and these interpersonal skills are probably as important, if not more important, than uh, than the actual medical knowledge that we need to do our jobs properly. That's what I would say about that, really. Yeah, no, definitely. I, mean, I, I remember when we were both training um, at Bristol Med School and, and any uh, kind of team-based communication or patient communication, especially, was often done with kind of actors um, who were basically learned how to be sort of what's called standardised patients, where they sort of learned a script and then had to interact with people. Um, but often they weren't that realistic. I mean, I certainly remember like some really bad actors basically uh, when when we were training yeah um, i remember them that they had the same ones they carted out for each exam and uh you knew which one was going to start crying or make a big fuss but as i said it becomes quite formulaic so if you kind of get your head around if you kind of understand the actor's position and try and get them on side quite early on by just being nice then when they do get upset you just give them some space and let them kind of blow themselves out and then and then start start the consultation again. That always seems to do the trick for me. And I carry that through my first surgical exam as well. And um, I think using silence is quite important with these communication skills scenarios to, to allow space before you can start again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think while those, um, those kind of teaching methodologies are, are really good at um, helping you to understand the sort of, I guess, frameworks that you can use um, in communicating with, with people when you're actually, as you said earlier, you put under pressure or you're speaking to someone who's agitated on a ward or explaining a, a diagnosis to someone where it's, it's going to sort of impact their lives or getting consent for an operation uh, with, a, with a time pressure. It's very, very different. Um, can you remember, I mean, do, do you think that that kind of like adequately prepared you for uh, when you sort of went into surgery and, and were speaking to patients on the wards? I think it, I think the stuff that, I think some of the communication skills we learned stuff was, was really helpful um, um, in terms of when you're flustered and busy and you're tired, just creating a structure to, to fall back on when you're communicating something difficult or you're assessing someone's competence. Um, so yeah, it is really important. Um, I don't think it provides sort of a natural intuition for understanding people in, in order to sort of optimise your team working within a with a stressful environment, but I think particularly around around things like consent and talking to the families, I always fall back on um, first of all trying to understand what they know, um, so sort of gauging the knowledge before I start talking, so I can pitch what I'm saying at the correct level. Um, and if you if it's like a new consultation with with a patient, then kind of trying to trying to tease out of them what what they're expecting, what they want, and what their ideas are. And obviously that goes back to this whole GP thing, ideas, ideas, concerns, expectations, 
is kind of a structure at the back of my mind, particularly when I'm, when I'm talking to new patients. Um, but I think I'm, you need to arm yourself when having difficult conversations with, with what, what, what their understanding of the situation is already and um, making sure you know who they are and how I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand the sort of angle they're coming from, it, which will help you empathise with them and get on side. And the last thing you want to do is put your foot in or upset someone right at the beginning of the conversation, which makes it way harder. So I, I always start by just trying to be as nice as possible and trying to find some sort of common points to empathise with. Let them talk to start with before I start explaining what I think the next step is or the plan is to do. Is always my approach to those kind of difficult conversations. Yeah, I think I think some, some really great points. And and just um just I guess taking a step back, I mean we we mentioned kind of trauma and orthopedics. Can you remember like what why you chose to go into trauma and orthopedics as a medical specialty? And I guess also for anyone listening who might not know what that is, could you give a kind of quick summary about what you what you do sort of in trauma and orthopedic surgery? Well, I suppose I could, I could summarize specialty first. And um, so it's basically the, the medicine of treating traumatic injury. But in this country, we tend to think of trauma as, as uh, orthopedic trauma. So um, basically broken bones and soft tissue. Um, I know in other parts of the world, trauma surgery is undertaken by a specialist, sort of a generalist surgeon that can specialise in all, in, in all sort of body areas of trauma. So they'd be able to do things like laparotomies and simple simple um, sort of external fixation device on, on broken bones. But it, the, the way that NHS works is that trauma surgeons just tend to specialise on the musculoskeletal system. Um, so that's one that's one half of the specialty. So that's the kind of the thing that you, you get to grips with very early on, um, treating people who have had, you know, had traumatic accidents and have broken bones and lacerations and things. And the, the, the second half of, of the specialty is, is more the elective side. So doing planned operations, trying to improve people's quality of life. Um, through typically things like joint replacement surgery, amongst other more specialist procedures. So I think that's generally the day-to-day in a nutshell. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's the thing more. So obviously, Alex, you know, Alex Young, you know a, a fair few bit about orthopedics as well. Yeah, no, well, I, was, I was just going to ask you really. Um, I can't remember asking school, but um, what what was your like personal reason of choosing trauma orthopedic surgery? Because in, obviously, in, in the UK you do medical school like in the, in the United States um, but then you have a couple of years of sort of um, general generalized training we do a number of things before specializing uh, which is a little bit different from from other some uh, some other parts of the world so what were your sort of personal reasons for getting into trauma orthopedics um yeah that's a good question so a lot, a lot of people say they look at me and say oh you must have a tight cast anything you could do is orthopedics given the fact that you used to play a lot of rugby um which is always quite funny, but actually I didn't have a huge amount of relation on, on me choosing specialty. And I think increasingly the access to orthopedics is, is, is getting massive now. And there are loads of people that don't necessarily come from the same kind of background that I have in terms of playing team sports and, and being a man. Um, now I, I chose um, orthopedics. I can't remember if anyone told me this or, or it might have been, it might have even been you that given me this idea at medical school that you should look at the people that you're, people doing the job that you're thinking about doing and seeing if they're happy and I remember being a medical student and and going around the wards and things doing what we normally do and just a lot a lot of a lot of doctors didn't seem to to me didn't seem to be particularly enjoying their job and they looked really stressed out the whole time and they weren't having a laugh or 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 making sort of making fun of making fun of of um 
difficult situations when to try and bring humor into to coping with the job and i always felt from when i did my orthopedic rotation that all the consultants although they at times they were stressed they all generally seemed to be pretty happy and they, and they liked what they were doing um, um another thing i thought um kind of defines being happy is having something that's consuming so an interest that's consuming so something like when you, you start doing something that uses your hands um, allows you to focus on something outside your own thoughts and doing something that that creates some kind of output or creates some some sort of product um, so you can actually see your hard work in front of you you know coming back so orthopedics is very much like that that you're you're using your hands um, you're diagnosing and, and, and you can treat and fix patient in front of you and, and quite quickly you can you can fix a broken bone and see that patient walk the next day or um, you can replace someone's hip and, and have them thanking you in clinic in a week or two weeks time um, I think those are really important in terms of having satisfaction in your job which ultimately leads to kind of being a happy person in life and I think I took that attitude as a medical student I looked ahead and I, I, I saw these guys and I think Generally, they're, they're all pretty pretty happy with with what they're doing, even though they're quite a high achieving you know group of doctors, and there's probably lots of other things they could be doing. But I think they're probably enjoying what they're doing to the expense that they probably don't want to do slightly more lucrative things in, in life. The other thing about orthopedics and trauma as a specialty is it's 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 got this sort of exciting acute side with the trauma, and then the more sort of planned elective side where you can be more precise and and plan things much more so it really does suit those both those sort of personality types um and we're quite lucky that um we treat children all the way to people you know in the 90s or 100s with with um sort of muscle skeletal problems so you can treat a whole range of um of patients when you're when you're going through a specialty which is quite different to a lot of other specialties where you either specialize just in, in children's medicine or or care of the elderly or, or just general medicine so i think that's i think that's a real good um, plus and I've already mentioned the fact that generally, so that out of the top, out of the top four interventions that have the best patient benefits in terms of satisfaction, I think the orthopedic surgeons are only number two and number three, which is hip replacement surgery and knee replacement surgery after cataract surgery. Um, so being asked to do an operation is generally um, generally successful and has been recognised having one of the highest patient satisfactions is is a great craft skill to be able to be able to do. The other thing about orthopedics is probably around half or just under half all surgeons in most hospitals in this country are orthopedic surgeons just due to the, the, the amount of, of work that needs doing. Um, so in that respect, you're always likely to have a job somewhere that, or someone that needs, needs that kind of stuff doing. So I think that's quite a good summary of why I think orthopedics is a good specialty to go into. That was awesome. Yeah, I don't think I could have done that there myself. And I think the, the only bit I'd add would be that, um, you know, in the community, so in, um, you know, family doctors uh, sort of practice in, in the US and, and general practice in the UK, um, around about 40% of presentations are to do with musculoskeletal disease. So it's, it's a massive burden on most healthcare systems. And, and in the United States, orthopedic surgery is one of the biggest cost categories as well. Um, which just goes to sort of show the the, the demand, the need uh, at a kind of societal level. Now, you're, you're pretty unique as a an orthopaedic um, surgical trainee in that you've, you've followed quite a kind of academic background and you mentioned there about um, patient outcomes and how important those are. Um, I was just wondering if you'd like to speak to 
why you were interested in those and, and what led you down a kind of academic path as well? Um, so I, I think I think part of get it for me getting into academics was that uh, as as I said earlier, I was really focused on rugby, and I um I, I ended up getting myself one of the reasons why I ended up in Bristol is because they offered me a rugby scholarship, and I mainly applied to medical schools based on who had the best rugby scholarship at the time, and Bristol came out top, and that's how I applied, and I was lucky to get in here. Um, but rugby wasn't rugby wasn't really doing it, doing it for me that much in Bristol, at least. By my second and third year, I, my, I don't think I was enjoying it as much as I was as a schoolboy. And um, as, as I was sort of suffering from injuries and stuff with rugby and kind of winding that down, I wanted to develop another sort of interest that I could take my, take my focus in the same way that rugby did. Um, and we had to do something called a student selected component, which is basically a sort of independent piece of work uh, for around a month in, in sort of the summertime as of when we hit our third year of medical school. And at the time I was choosing my rotation, my, my, my project, I was doing my orthopedic rotation and there'd been some, um, some new clinical guidelines introduced that were recommending that surgeons had to prescribe a very strong um, form of um, VTE and DVT protein um, prophylaxis called dabigatran um, and they were saying that this should be prescribed over the more commonly prescribed drug in, in the unit where, where I was doing uh, my placement which was aspirin and a lot of the surgeons were complaining they were seeing lots of wound ooze so the dressings over people's hip and knee replacements were kind of seeping through with, with what we call serous annulus fluid so kind of blood stains um, sort of fluid from, from the interstitial tissues of, the, of um, the patient's wounds and obviously having a wound that's still openly oozing increases your risk of superficial infection. When you have superficial infection, um, you have a much higher risk of converting that to a deep infection, which is actually a massive disaster if you've just had a joint replacement surgery. So that's something that really needs to be avoided. And, and some of the research from here has shown that um, deep joint infection surgery in the long run can have similar sort of patient outcomes to, have, to, being, to having some being diagnosed with, with a cancer so you know it's, it's very serious so um, that's how things started and I, um, I ended up doing a, a study called a cohort study um, so I collected data on people's wound wounds for people that had this new drug Pradaxa and then compared it to another cohort of patients who were just having the aspirin and then we showed that the the, the time to the time to wound wounds was, was almost twice as long on average in patients that were having the stronger DVT pro, VT prophylaxis, um, and that gave me a real buzz that I've, I've actually shown a difference, and that led on to writing a paper that was then published, which was quite, which was, which was, which was quite cool as a medical student, um, and it kind of made me realise that um, in order to in order to affect change, um, there's only really so much you can do just by practising clinical medicine so there's only a certain number of patients that you'll see in a lifetime of being a doctor whereas if you can have this whole other string to your bow of of being able to do research being able to show differences and being able to write and influence clinical guidelines then if you can improve the whole of medical practice for the better then not only these treating patients in front of you so therefore getting that satisfaction but you also um, get the buzz of, of um, knowing that you're actually sort of improving you know, humanity's approach to, to healthcare um, through through um, through academic research is is was 
the idea of that just seems really fulfilling to me. And, and in, or, in order to do in order to do that, then you, you have to go through this process of, of academic training, which fortunately in this country we can do at the same time as our clinical training through um, through funded fellowships through the National Institute of Health Research, which is something that I was interested in. And from my first research project, I described what led on to other things, and um, I eventually got a got a job as a as an academic foundation doctor, which then led on to a job as an academic clinical fellow, which kind of brought me into the PhD. Um, and the PhD is, is, is almost something that it's, it's not essential, but it's kind of required if you want to go on and be a, a clinical lecturer or, or go on sort of higher academic research um, whilst you're practicing clinical medicine or surgery. So that's kind of ended up why I've, why I've done the, the academic training alongside my clinical training. So, yeah. No, very cool. And you, you did your um, your uh, academic um, clinical fellowship was at Warwick, um, and then you moved on and got your PhD from from sort of Oxford, and then uh, are doing some of it over in Bristol as well. Yeah. Um, can you speak to some of the, the stuff you've done on the, the patient reported outcome measures, and, and what that sort of I guess means to, to someone who might not know anything about a joint replacement and why it's so important? Okay, so. Um... Yeah, I first I first touched on patient reported outcomes really early actually when I was um, when I was in my fourth year medical school we did did some work looking at recording um, questionnaires so basically patient reported outcomes in various scales for patients that have different types of um, different types of um, material bearings in their hip and hip hip um, replacements and hip resurfacing um, so that's when I sort of first realised about how important patient outcomes are and then. Strangely, my, my PhD is kind of all led around patient reported outcomes. So, um, so I'm just going to just quickly sort of introduce you to some of the concepts. So, an outcome measure in the context of a trial is is the entity or the or the thing, the concept that you you want to measure in that patient that shows an effect of the treatment that you're going to give that patient. So, um, basically. Unless you're measuring something that has shows any any benefit or any use to that patient, there's really no point doing the trial because if you're measuring outcomes on patients for a treatment that has no bearing on what, what's important or what's not important for that patient, then you're kind of wasting your time doing the trial. So, so I you know I think now that the most important thing that you need to think about whenever you want to do research on patients is is what you're going to what you're going to measure because what you're measuring really needs to be something that's very important to that patient that, that's going to actually have an effect. And I think his, historically the problem is in a lot of medical research that um, doctors have been measuring things that are important to doctors rather than things that have been important to patients. And that's particularly the case in, in orthopaedics and, and, and even more so in, in orthopaedic trauma surgery, which kind of led, um, led into, into, into my um, PhD. So there's, um, there's a group of academics based in Liverpool that have been pioneering something called the, the Core Outcome Measures and Effectiveness Trials Initiative, the COMET Initiative. And they're, they're basically their premise of the initiative is that by unifying the way that we record and measure um, outcomes in specific disease areas, we can A, reduce something called data heterogeneity, which is basically um, everyone's measuring different things on the same disease we can't really compare those results very well if we can't compare results very well then we basically hamper our ability to produce high level evidence through something called meta-analysis which is taking the results from lots of different trials and putting it in using statistical analysis to show a more stronger effect of the treatments 
So that's one thing. The other thing is that um, basically in, in, most, in most countries, um, when doctors are treating specific conditions, they follow um, something called clinical guidelines. So it, in, in the UK, we have um, an agency called NICE that produce clinical guidelines. And basically they have whole, whole teams of systematic reviewers when they're making these guidelines who systematically search, review and data, data extracts the evidence around treatments in that, um, in that condition. But if you know anything about systematic review, you have to structure your review in terms, and most people use a structure called PICO, so patient intervention, comparison and outcome. So in order, if you unify the outcomes for that disease area, then when you're creating clinical guidelines, you can collect outcomes from research that are more important to patients. So you can better make um, clinical guidelines. So it has sort of dual effect of basically increasing um, increasing the power of research and the quality of the research in order to produce better guidelines and therefore better patient care. Um, so my PhD is around um, unifying the way that unifying what we measure and then secondly how we measure it in patients, in adult patients who've had open limb fractures. Um, and this is something that's, that's it's really important to the, to, the, to the group that I'm affiliated with in Oxford. Um, the, the Oxford University um, Orthopaedic Trauma Research Group, who've done a lot of do a lot of work around um, clinical effectiveness of, around orthopaedic interventions and trauma surgery. So they've actually created a core outcome set already for for hip fracture, and the, those recommended outcomes has led on to something called the, the World Hip Orthopaedic, um, sorry, something called the White Trial. Um, where they created a big sort of national cohort of, of um, data of patients who've had a um, hip fracture surgery. And the plan is to try and use my project to, to create a big cohort of um, data on patients that have had open limb fractures in the future. So I hope that's not probably going into a bit too much detail there, but um, basically the, the key point is that really the, the outcome measure is lies at the heart of any clinical research study. Um, and the way that we've been measuring them and choosing what to measure up until recently basically hasn't been very good. And it needs to be more patient focused rather than surgeon focused. So um, the PhD is about addressing that in my particular area, which is open limb fractures. But more broadly, we need to start thinking more deeply about um, how we measure outcome in medicine, because ultimately that, that shapes um, the way that the way that we adopt interventions, the way that we judge whether they have any benefit or not. Yes, I mean, it's, it's an awesome explanation and it's really interesting uh, hearing you talk and, and explain that. I mean, it's basically the principles of what's called evidence-based medicine. So making sure that we are practicing things that are driven by data and um, research validated outcomes, because there's a lot of um, different factors that might affect someone's health or outcomes that we need to kind of account for. Um, especially if you're introducing, say, a, a new medical device or a new medication, as you alluded to, all those things have got to go through lots and lots of evidence-based research before they're actually prescribed and affect patients. Um, and I think the other bit that is really interesting, especially in um, US hospitals where uh, patients at a satisfaction and, and hospital um, scoring systems on, on patient qualitative data is really, really important. Um, and ensuring that the patients have a fantastic experience as well as 
um, an outcome as well. Do you, do you think that um, uh, things like qualitative feedback and scoring systems on uh, sort of, I guess, patients' interpretation of the care that they've received is, is going to come and factor in more to healthcare in the future um, with, with sort of almost like a, uh, a sort of feedback system on, on members of staff and the whole experience of the patient journey? Yeah, I, I think there's there's definitely a role for that uh, in in the future. But we, as I said, we need to make sure that we're asking the patients the right things and recording and, and recording it at the right time. Um, and sort of when we when we're actually gathering information from patients about feedback, then what, making sure that what we are gathering is is useful and. Um, so the latter sort of part of my PhD is around looking at what we call clinometric properties, which includes the, the, the validity of an, of an instrument, a measurement instrument for recording what it's supposed to record. So a lot of measurement instruments are used in populations that they're not validated in. Um, so there are very, very few instruments validated in the orthopedic trauma population, yet most trials in orthopedic trauma that collect patient reported outcome measures use instruments that have been validated outside of those populations with the exception of sort of bespoke um, measures like the Oxford hip score or the Oxford knee score which has very good validation uh, data in that uh, patient population so that's people have had elective hip or knee um, arthroplasty surgery so when you're saying should we be doing you know questionnaires and stuff on patients after they come out of hospital yes but with the caveat that those questionnaires should be validated or have good, good evidence for, for being good measure, uh, a useful tool um, in, in, the, in that population. And, and actually, the more deeply you look, at, you look into that, you, you realise that actually it isn't that simple. And there's whole fields of medical research around um, the creation of, of, measurements, of um, measurement instruments in medicine. And there's various different things, which I, I can't even name off the top of my head. Um, which need to be considered when you choose what kind of scale or measurement instrument you're going to use to, to measure something on a patient. Um, so I think hopefully, you know, increasingly gone are the days where we just pick measurement instruments just pulling nearly out the out the air to measure things because we think they look good, but actually there's more to it than just the face validity of the instrument. And um, that has to be, you know, considered when we're collecting data. Um, and there's some quite you know, exciting stuff coming in the future called adaptive adaptive uh, measurements. So based on the answer that you give, the, a computer algorithm will, will ask a corresponding question next so that the, you don't um, have, a, have a ceiling effect in the measurement instrument, which, which tends to happen with, you know, if you gave, you know, the Oxford hip score to, to like a, you know, an international athlete, they score very highly, but they might still have hip pain, um, but their level of normal is, their, their, their physical function is way above, you know, the average 75 year old, for example. So there's, there's going to be these kind of adaptive tests coming through in the future. The other thing that's interesting um, in, that's coming through in the future of measurement medicine is, is so something called physical performance measures. So objectively quantifying someone's actual level of physical activity through things like accelerometers or through a GPS track on their phone or using basically using smart technology in order to create, to create quantifiable data on, on, on a patient's physical function, which is much, much less subjective. Um, 
So I think things like that are going to be coming through in the future. You can even put accelerometers embedded inside a hip hip, hip off prostate implant now, which can be you know read wirelessly, and the surgeon can see you know what their range of motion is, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think um, there's going to need to be a sort of a, a combination of these new physical performance measures and then adaptive adaptive scales coming through to, to get a really good idea of you know what's effective. Um, in the future so yeah i mean that's probably roughly kind of my thoughts on measurement and medicine going forward yes it's, it's really interesting I mean, the other bit i was just going to ask you on that was i guess you know pulling together our um you know the early part of the conversation on communication skills with patients and uh collecting patient data certainly when i um was practicing uh you know a significant number of places were still using kind of paper forms to collect um patient reported outcome measures or, or feedback and things um how are you seeing, I guess, you know, technology influence both patient education and the collection of uh, data at scale at the moment? And, and how do you think that's going to change in the future? Well, I think, unfortunately, I, I don't think things are as far along as they perhaps should be in the NHS in terms of using technology to collect data. Um, so uh, so the, the research group that I work for now um, are almost completely have the ability now to completely collect trial data on a wireless on a on paperless system which is absolutely fantastic and, and that's a huge step in the right direction um they they spend a lot of money and a lot of time developing that system and i think get developing these these new data collection methods within the nhs has really come to and I, and I think things really need to be streamlined to make that easier for people to do um, what was the other part of that? The so, I mean, what other advances with technology you seeing sort of through the patient journey for surgery? Um, I think, well, as you know, I, I, I'm a big advocate for, for the use of um, for, for patient education prior to surgery, and I think that um, the Verti platform has got a, a place to play in providing accessible virtual reality immersive sort of experience the patient better prepare them for their for their journey through through any kind of surgical procedure if not any kind of um hospital admission at the moment i don't think anything really exists in, in any sort of scalable form i know that you know a lot of hospitals offer physio education classes to patients before they have hip and knee replacement patients don't need to turn up they don't have to turn up some of them don't it's you know it's difficult getting to hospital getting parked and now you know, with, with the, the coronavirus, you know, all these patient education things have basically just been cancelled, I think, and, you know, it's just not practical to be able to deliver. And, and actually, you know, you've got a physiotherapist and a healthcare assistant delivering, you know, a lecture-based education to patients coming in. You know, that, that physiotherapist is, is, is a skilled member of your clinical team. They need to be, you know, they, they've, got, they've got better things to do, really, than, than, than still in a lecture theatre teaching. Um, when, when the teaching can, can probably be delivered remotely, you know, it, as long as that, as long as we can show that that, um, that that can be done as well as it can be done personally, not better, then I think that's definitely what we need to, to go through. And I was I was talking to you earlier, I said, like a huge bugbear of mine. <laughs> I don't know um, how old people feel that we're in the medical profession is that we, we do a huge amount of, um, of of you know exams even after leaving medical school. And going beyond that, we, we're expected to, to go on um, continuing professional development courses 
um, often at personal, exp personal expense, both to our time and our finances. And every time we change hospital um, or job, we're often expected to do some kind of basic induction program, which is basically so that the trust can be, you know, um, insured by the, by, the, by the insurance company that's insuring the hospital that their staff have done fire safety, for example. Um, so we're doing these kind of E-type inductions all the time. But we're not, we're not going to the hospital uh, undertaking a, a procedure that's got, you know, potential risks of infection or death. Um, but yeah, we're operating on patients that may not have really had a proper induction or any kind of education about the, the procedures they're going under. Um, yeah, we expect um, people to have passed a driving theory test or a driving practical test before they get on the get on the road and, and potentially drive, you know, you know, half a ton of metal down the street. And, you know, that's we, you know, we need to do driving tests, but but at the same time, we're we're, we're doing. Um, quite complex interventions with people that, 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 that have not passed any kind of assessment of understanding beyond um, what we call informed consent process, which is, has, to be honest, varying levels of informedness. Um, so I, one of the things I'd really like to see in the future is, is um, kind of patients having to work through an education programme, which is suited to their, to their ability in order to, to, to make sure they're you know, best prepared as possible before they, they get potentially undergoing potential you know, life-changing um, surgical procedures, um, particularly in, in the realm of you know, a planned elective orthopedic surgery. So that's my field, but uh, again, for, any, for anything, and um, I think we need to educate patients to take more ownership of their, of their health. And, and in more, gen more, more generally, I think patients should be holding their own medical records I think they should be understanding their own health diseases and they should be working much more in partnership with the doctor, the doctors and their general, general practitioners about how, how to improve their health and, and how to treat their health. And it, we talk about this thing called shared care in medicine when we were at medical school and how the healthcare model has gone from sort of paternalistic approach where doctor knows best and no one questions the doctor to this kind of idea that you, you share you share the decision making with your patient you, you educate them in the form and you can't make a decision together i think that's a great idea i don't think we're really doing it though um and, and particularly around surgery I, i'd really like to see you know more more, more intervention put into, into the patient education and I, I believe that whether whether it would affect measurable outcome we might not be able to tell but i think it's going to increase satisfaction of patient journey and, and you know preparing preparing people you know getting their expectations right for what to expect um yeah i think there's a huge role for that to play particularly in nhs and probably you know overseas as well yeah I, th I think it's a fantastic point you make and i think often we we forget how scary um it is for patients coming in for not just surgery but any procedure or any like intervention or even just coming in to see a doctor so uh, there's obviously something called white coat syndrome where people's blood pressure and heart rate goes up, even if they just see a doctor in clinic in some circumstances. And uh, we, I suppose, as, or rather you as a health professional, me as an ex-health professional, uh, kind of get you know, used to um, being in a hospital and, and seeing people with varying levels of, of, of ill health. But for someone coming in for a one-off procedure where they uh, you know, are being put to sleep and they're having a significant um, intervention performed on them, it can be absolutely terrifying. And if there's anything that education can do to reduce that anxiety and stress, then 
that's going to benefit the patient on a you know an emotional and kind of anxiety level um, and it might also then uh, be of help with clinical outcomes like satisfaction schools and things like that along the term which I, I find absolutely fascinating yeah absolutely yeah if we can if we can educate our patients to, to, to look look for you know understand you know if they're if they're feeling short of breath after their surgery or they've got painful calves or why 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 are they feeling so breathless walking to the toilet and they, they might think oh I, I learned this on an education video I'm you know I'm five days after my operation then I could have this thing called pulmonary embolus you know that prompt them to, to, to call a doctor and you know that's potentially life-saving that you know you've delivered proper education to that patient and and they can, you know, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of false positives and stuff, but ultimately, you know, th- these kind of things could, can save lives and, and, uh, and really improve things and, and, be, be, and put, put the patient, make the patient much more empowered in terms of um, understanding their own health and why, why they're having, really understanding why they're having this, this procedure and what they can expect to get, to get from it. Um, whereas I think at the moment, a, a lot of people don't have, don't, don't have a clear idea. Uh, you know, it's not going to be a panacea. This, this you know, patient education is always going to, it's always going to be stress, anxiety, and people, you know, might not necessarily get what they've been told about. But I think it will definitely help. And I mean, I, you know, it's, you you wear lots and lots of hats. You're doing like a ton of amazing stuff. And you said at the uh, you know the top of the the podcast in your introduction, you're also a uh, health education England simulation fellow as well. And and one of the really cool things you did with us at the start of the year um, was actually looking at how training is delivered in resource limited environments and um, on, on you know to that end you actually went over with some of our team to Ethiopia um, I unfortunately didn't get to do that because I was in the US but um, it'd be awesome just before we kind of wrap up if you could um, explain why you did that and, and what that involved and, and what the kind of outcomes were. Um, yeah so, so, so basically um Obviously, I, I know a lot about the, the Verti platform and, and how it's got this power to be able to deliver immersive training in a, in a, in a mobile fashion remotely. And basically, I wanted to come up with a model that would show, you know, show how useful this kind of technology could be. And I, I basically took things to the extreme and thought, well, if we can deliver and create um, virtual and augmented reality content in some in the, in the world like Ethiopia, then we can do it anywhere, um, and I think that's where it's got you know a lot of, a lot of power to affect change. Is you know it will improve things in the first world, but it it, it has more far more potential to be scalable and roll out roll out in uh, in more resource poor healthcare systems, where where the sort of human factors training that we regularly get delivered in, in this country um, just just doesn't happen to the same extent, and, and there are lots of avoidable deaths. Um, through things that can be, you know, prevented through education of healthcare professionals in in, in Africa and other places like that. Um, so basically, the, the the premise was that we would um, identify um, somewhere to go in the world where the healthcare system it, 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 um, is is more resource limited, and then trial um, the feasibility of of um, of giving some sort of demonstration teach, teaching or teaching content. Using using the Verti platform to to um, to people's smartphones on the ground. So I mean, before we went, did a bit of research and and saw that basically that smartphone ownership across Africa is actually pretty high, and 
having spoken to the doctors that work in the hospital we went to in Ethiopia, pretty much um, every doctor there has a, has a smartphone or some sort of phone that's connected to Wi-Fi or, or, um, or 3G, 4G data. So that's pretty much how all, all doctors in, in Ethiopia communicate with each other. They don't have like archaic belief systems like in the UK. And um, they basically use apps akin to, to WhatsApp in order to sort of um, communicate uh, clinical de details and things like that to each other when they're, you know, remotely. So this kind of set a scene really for, you know, a really good opportunity to, to, to try and deliver um, the simulation training through virtual reality on, on the ground. Um, so I was, I was really lucky that um, I, I'd ref I, I seen that the University of Oxford offer um, something called a Oxford Africa Initiative Research Grant, which is basically a small up to £5,000 research primer in order to create research collaborative links in Africa. And this kind of led me to, to apply for a small amount of money from them in order to pay for uh, myself and um, one of the guys from Verti, the CTO from Verti, to come over with, uh, come over with me and um, try and sort of pilot this, 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 this project. Um, so uh, um, about a year or two ago, another another registrar um, orthopedic surgeon in this training area had set up a, a collaborative with a place called Bahidar, which is um, just on the edge of Lake Tana in Ethiopia. So they they sort of it's, it's basically around education for, for us to go for the, the surgeons here to, to fly out there and, and deliver you know teaching and, and for those surgeons to come out here and and see how we do things in the NHS. So. This basically was a fantastic opportunity to tag along to one of their trips, which was centered around um, pediatric surgery and orthopedics. Um, so we went out with another registrar and our, our training program director, Mr. Simon Thomas, um, who was delivering teaching on how to, how to put something called TENS nails into, into sawbones and leaving some, some, some nails out there for them to use actually, um, which is a far better way of, of, of fixing um, childhood long long bone fractures than than what they were using out there, which is basically any old plate and screw they could find. Um, so, what, what the plan was to try and record some some operative content that might be useful in the UK, and then upload that to the Verti the Verti platform, and then meet a group of um, doctors in Ethiopia and get them to download the app, register, and then download that content to their devices. And then watch it back and provide us some sort of feedback. So, one of the things that um, this, this this charity connection is is trying to pay for is a, is a C arm, which is um, what we call a sort of C arm image intensifier, which is basically a mobile X-ray machine that we use in the operating theatre to take X-rays of the bones while we're operating, so we can see where the pieces of metal are going in the bones to make sure we're not hitting or going near any areas that we shouldn't be. Um, so, it's amazing to think that currently. Um, in, in this hospital in Ethiopia, they, they don't they don't use X-ray imaging at all in in uh, in their orthopedic surgery, which almost begs belief uh, when you're doing something like a, a dynamic hip screw, when you've got to fire a, a guide wire, you know, bang up the middle of, of of the neck of the femur into the head in order to sort of get your screw up there to fix that fracture and put compression across it. Um, they're basically doing doing these kind of procedures blind, or they're or they're having to open the patient right up so they can see the bone. Um, or, or they, or they fire the guide wire up, put a put a big drape over the patient while still in the then roll them around to the X-ray machine in, in, you know, in another corridor in the hospital, take an X-ray while they're still under anaesthetic, and then bring them back into the operating theatre. And you can imagine what kind of set out and infection risk that that would pose. Um, I, I think it's not just for anyone who's not a. Uh... You know, it doesn't know much about orthopedics. The uh, X-ray intraoperatively is used 
in almost every single operation um, other than hip and sort of knee replacements and, and things that involve sort of a, a quite a big sort of open incision um, because it's a very kind of engineering and, and mechanical specialty where you need to uh, line up where your you know your plates or the screws as you were um, talking about uh, actually fit and in, in the UK that's and, and, and in most places that's a quick sort of flash of the x-ray machine in the operating theatre making sure you're in the correct position and then continue and carry on so if you're having to take people around to the x-ray department or if you're going in blind you know that that can really cause cause trouble later on so it's 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 a massive difference and a massive kind of lack of resource with with that particular piece of equipment yeah so um this initiative this this exchange um i think that they call themselves bones actually bristol orthopedic Bahadar um exchange something um they have almost got funding together to, to be able to buy buy a CRM and, and deliver it to out to the hospital in, in Bahidar. Um, so when, when you're using a CRM in this country, we have to um, call in a radiographer to use it because you know unless you've done specific training, particularly with the smaller CRMs around hand surgery, then we're not as surgeons we're not really allowed to touch that because it's obviously you know controlled radiation exposure. And there's certain safety things that need to be considered. And also, operating that machine while you're concentrating on a surgery is, isn't very practical. So, um, so we basically an idea that we had was we I contacted one of the radio radiographers at, at, at our local hospital just just around the corner of my house, um, and asked him to to come and, and talk me through how to use from the, from the ground upwards a, a, a basic CR image intensifier, something similar to what they might be getting in, in Ethiopia. Um, so we recorded this in in, in, um, in 360 degrees. So create like a virtual reality experience. You could look around, you could look around the room, the operating theatre, and see kind of visuospatially how you move that CR into the table and how you rotate it to get different kind of shots, um, which probably is more helpful and more intuitive. We thought than just reading through like a sort of operating manual, which um, you know. Actually, actually, the, the, the Ethiopian surgeons' level of English was, was actually fantastically good. I don't know what their level of written English is like, but it, you know, they probably have no problem reading. But just just um, being able to see it just adds a whole new dimension to to to, to, to kind of learning. So we recorded this, and then um, we recorded a few other things like um, the WHO safety checklist, which is again is a, is a sort of um, human factors thing that is is just second nature to any operation in this country, uh, and is probably used widely th um, throughout Africa, and, and it is actually used in. Ethiopia, but as, as an example, we recorded that, and then we took took those videos and we, we delivered them back, basically in Ethiopia. Um, we brought out some um, some sort of just sort of, they call Oculus Go headsets, were, were, were just sort of purpose made virtual reality headsets, which were already preloaded with some of the video content that we record in the UK, so we could basically demonstrate it to them out there. So that's one aim of the project. The second aim of the project was um, to prove that. Given the camera, which is relatively inexpensive, we're only talking about three or four hundred pounds, and the, and the recording equipment like the tripod, the head mount, the battery packs, the data cards, and they've got you know basic computers on the ground that can that can do the that can do the um, sort of video um, editing pretty easily. Whether they can create their, their own video content, because where we went was, was was kind of more like a tertiary hospital, and there was it was feeling a huge area of um, of the country, so. You know, people are often walking for like three, four days of traveling with their open fractures to eventually get to this hospital. So there are obviously community doctors working in small hospitals that may 
need education delivered to them in, in an even more rural setting than where we were. So we basically wanted to show not only could we del deliver education that we've made in England, but they could create their own learning content in Ethiopia and either share it with us back in the UK or share it with other doctors around their country. Um, so we, we, we recorded some demo content while we were out there, which included a hospital induction tool, um, which, they, which the department said they really like, which, which kind of looks really snazzy. Um, and we recorded a, um, a, de a, a debridement of a sort of chronically infected um, osteo from osteomyelitis that needed sort of surgically removing and debriding, washing out. We managed to go into the operating theatre and we filmed the first surgeon using, a, using one of the um, 360 cameras on a head mount and that had some really good footage. And we re recorded some clinic, clinic footage. Um, you, you got kind of scrubbing up for operations as well. And I think it was, it was awesome when I actually saw it because I'd, I'd done a, a, a kind of placement on my medical elective in Tanzania where I'd worked in uh, the Mount Miri Hospital. But I think often you uh, forget that um, even in resource-limited environments, there's an amazing skill set from the surgeons out there. And there's a lot that reciprocally uh, we in kind of, uh, you know, uh, more sort of resource-rich healthcare settings can learn from, from those resource-limited environments. And that was one of the really cool things to see that not only were you able to take out content on the headsets um, and, and, and use it through the phones as well, but we could also uh, create stuff bespoke for those um, hospitals uh, that was unique to them that could also be used and, and seen by people back in the UK. And uh, that kind of helps firstly develop kind of empathy for, for those situations, hopefully also to encourage uh, surgeons to uh, follow on and do education in those settings. Um, and also, you know, really see some pathologies that often you might not see um like uh, exactly as you say your osteomyelitis is where people have um had them in quite rural areas and then and then only presented quite late in the disease process um so it was really really interesting and um i mean just to sort of f finish off um on, on that point what were some of the sort of interesting outcomes you saw from the residents perspectives and, and some of the feedback you got on that well, they were they were really positive about about the idea, and, and they really felt that it's something that could be you know incorporated as part of their training. Um, you know, they don't get they don't get exposure to seeing things like hip arthroplasty or or, or, or knee arthroplasty surgeries because they just can't. They, you know, there's only one there's only one hospital in there, in um, Addis Ababa that will do those surgeries, so they're not they're not doing those elective surgeries. So as part of their training, they could be exposed to that um, using using this kind of technology. Um, so that, you know, that that kind of really excited them, and and um, the idea of being able to sort of see operations remotely was also something they wanted to do. And another another technology that they another use of the technology that they really wanted to do was probably was to get a three hundred sixty degree camera and mount it in the operating theatre, so that they're doing if they're doing surgery, you know, on a difficult, unusual case that they may not have operated on before, then then those those virtual reality images can be you know beam to to Addis Ababa or or to a surgeon in Bristol who can then talk them through, you know, the next step of the surgery or, or, or give a second opinion, you know, live uh, while they're doing that, you know, thousands of miles away, which is really, you know, that's really exciting. Um, so that, yeah, that was really good. And with the kind of, this is kind of mushroomed up. So our training pro program director was on there and he got first-hand experience sort of recording the, the 300 content and then seeing the, the demo content we made. And I think he was quite excited by it. And now with, with all our orthopedic, Registrar teaching being delivered remotely. There's um, quite quite an interest now in, in the region about 
how we can try and incorporate the Verti platform and and deliver our some, you know operative training you know remotely using virtual reality, which is something really exciting. I I know both Alex and I are keen to, keen to sort of jump on and and, um, and help out with here. Yeah, I mean it's, it's been it's been super rewarding from uh, you know our side as well that uh, you know this is exactly the kind of stuff the platform's been built for, and it's been it's been super cool to see. Um, you know the research that, that you and, and some of the other people have been doing with the platform, which which is just awesome. Um, so I mean, just to kind of you know wrap things up, uh, it's, it's always amazing like hearing all the cool stuff that you've done across like a multitude of different things, which always impresses me. Um, who is your kind of? We always have a, a human performance hero at the end of the podcast. Who who is you know someone from either sports or, or orthopedics or anything that has kind of influenced you? Um, in, in everything that you kind of do? I know that's a tough question because I don't I don't really I don't know I don't really have heroes so much. I don't know. I don't I don't, I don't really ever kind of think think about that or think or think about that. I think there's, there's there's a lot of people I respect, but I think the idea of having a hero of someone that you've never met it just seems obscure to me because you're not really experiencing the reality of that person because you're only you're only getting second or third hand knowledge through, you know, media and other sources about what they're, what they're really like. You, you can see sort of like a potted tissue achievements, which obviously some people are absolutely amazing. But, um, but you know, I, I, I don't think I could have a hero unless I, I've met them myself. So, um, so in terms of human factors hero, I think Alex probably could have to be you. And the reason, the reason I'm going to say, I haven't paid you to say this. The, re- the reason I'm going to say is because, um, first of all, you've, You've you you know you, you were courageous in the fact that you, you've left you've taken a step and you know you've, it's, it's a big deal to leave to leave orthopedic training and, and, and the medical field given the amount of time you invested in in that in that career you know we're talking you know years probably you know upwards of ten years since leaving school I was spent doing orthopedics and it was probably only about two or three years off finishing um, that, that you know he had belief and it was courageous that he that he left but also your ability to um, to get other people to believe in your ideas and to get other people to do to do work for you and feel happy about working for you is, is really impressive. And I think that is testament to a lot of the success you've had with the company. Thank you so much for those kind of words. And I think like equally, um, you know, all the stuff that you've done on the academic side, you know, I know you've uh, given up a lot to kind of go in and, you know, chase some of the academic kind of excellent stuff that you've done um, and, and all the kind of research and things that you're doing is so impactful on kind of like patient populations and uh you know a heck of a lot of other stuff as well so um yeah I mean I've, I've got like a tremendous amount of respect for, for everything that you've done and um I think um I think you know anyone who wants to kind of find out more about some of the research you're doing or, or any of the you know the stuff you're doing with us um you will we'll include your kind of contact details um what, what about sort of uh, where can people go to find like information on sort of oxford's research and and bristol orthopedics where, where, where can they sort of find that so i'm um, particularly with, with the oxford group that i'm doing my phd with there's if you if you search for um the department uh website so it's endorms nothing orthopedic department of musculoskeletal um, sciences which is a mouthful but endorms um and then within that, there's the, the research group is called the Oxford um, Orthopaedic Trauma Group. And that's led by um, Matt Costa, who's one of my professors. So there's a lot of stuff about what they're doing around clinical effectiveness and orthopaedic surgery up on the website. And then um, if you type in, you know, Bristol 
orthopedics will probably take you to the University of Bristol musculoskeletal research unit page, which is the kind of stuff that we're doing in Bristol.